The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. chock full of theology. I'm not not uh, just kind of normal biblical teaching, but really deep, life-changing understanding of who Jesus Christ is and how he becomes the Messiah, the life changer, the Savior of our lives. In this uh, study, we come to a certain kind of theology called typology. Anything that ends in an ology is the study of, like biology is the study of life. So Typology is the study of types of Christ that appear in the Old Testament before Christ Jesus himself appeared. They are, they are pictures of, illustrations of, even foreshadowing of the Savior that God would send. And there are, there are lots of them. They're really fun to study. Uh, one of them is Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. He is, he is rejected by his brothers. He is sold for 30 pieces of silver And uh, Joseph would later tell his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Jesus comes to Israel. He comes to his own, to the Jews, and he's rejected by them. He's betrayed uh, for 30 pieces of silver, and what they intended as a murder, his crucifixion on the cross, becomes the ransom of our souls and the, uh, the salvation of mankind. What man intended for evil, God turned for good. Moses is a type of Christ. Uh, Israel is in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, in Egypt. And Egypt's a picture of the world, and they're in slavery, and that's a picture of sin in our lives. And so Moses comes as the deliverer, and he delivers them out of the world, out of the slavery of sin, and he takes them into the promised land. During the days of Moses, the tenth tenth plague is the Passover. The Passover lamb is a type of Christ. The the 10th plague was this, that God would send his death angel and that every family that did not take the, a perfect spotless male lamb and kill it and take the blood and put it on the doorposts, uh, any place where that didn't happen, then death would reign. But where the blood of the lamb was shed, the death angel would pass over that house. And so the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And wherever the blood of Jesus is applied, death no longer reigns, but the death angel passes over and we live in eternal life. So there are a lot of these. They're wonderful studies. They're great studies. They really make your Bible come alive. There's one lesser known type of Christ. And that's a guy named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's an interesting name. If uh, some of you ladies are pregnant, you're expecting a son, I offer to you the name Melchizedek. It would be unique. He would be 14 or 15 before he could spell his name, but think about it. Uh, Melchizedek's only mentioned uh, three times in all of the Bible. His story is told in Genesis 14. Uh, David... By inspired by the Holy Spirit, prophesies of Jesus to come in the 110th Psalm, and then he's mentioned here in Hebrews. Let me tell you the story. The story is that uh, Abraham has a nephew named Lot 
who was growing colder and colder to the things of the Lord and is starting to embrace the world. And so he's moving closer and closer to Sodom. He would eventually move in the city of Sodom. Well, some other kings attack the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They defeat those kings, they plunder them, and they take their people as slaves. A messenger comes to Abraham and he says, your nephew Lot has been taken as a slave. He's going into another country. And so Abraham puts together his fighting men and they go on a very daring midnight raid. It's kind of Abraham's SEAL Team 6. And they are, uh, they're completely successful. They, they surprise them in the middle of their, they're celebrating that they won this battle. They kill them all and they rescue everybody without anybody dying. They, they get it all. And Genesis 14, when Abraham's coming back, he's so thankful. He wants to give thanks to the Lord for the raid, the fact that he didn't lose anybody. He saved his nephew, that he stops to worship in Salem. It's not yet called Jerusalem. It's just called Salem. And there he meets the high priest, the king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews, because he's writing to Hebrews, right? He always uses Old Testament illustrations. So now he's going to use this illustration to compare and contrast the earthly, finite, limited, very imperfect Levitical priesthood and a different kind of priest, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, we are going to read Hebrews 7, but before we do that, because you're not Hebrews, if you were all Hebrews, we could go straight to the Scripture right now. But because you're not Hebrews, I need to kind of get you up to speed. There's some things that you need to know about the Levitical priesthood before we read this passage so that it'll make sense to you. Number one, the Levitical priesthood, so let me, maybe you might not even know this. So there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? One of the tribes is Levi. All the other 11 tribes, when they go to the promised land, they get land, but not Levi. They are the lineage of the priests, and Aaron and Moses are of the tribe of Levi. So Aaron's ancestors will become priests in that sense. So they don't get any land. They're supported because the other 11 tribes bring them their tithes and offerings. So all these priests come from Levi. They're the Levitical priesthood. So here's the first one. This priesthood, this Levitical priesthood, was particularly Jewish. What you need to know is only Jews could be priests. They only worked with Jews. It was, it was of Jews, for Jews, by Jews. No Gentiles were ever allowed. If you wanted into Judaism, you had to become a Jew. You had to become a Hebrew. So it is just for Jews. Number two, no Levite could ever be king. Um, When you read the Old Testament passage, you will discover that our American founding forefathers took from Moses' rules the uh, separation of powers. In America, we separate executive from judicial from legislative. In ancient Israel, they separated the priesthood from the kingdom. So no priest could ever be king. He was an ordinary guy representing ordinary people. That's who the Levitical priest was. Number three, the, the ministry of the priest, the priesthood, had no permanent effect. Um, let's say that uh, you're my priest, and I come to you and I say, man, did I really blow it today. 
I mean, I, I tell you what I did, and you say, yeah, you really blew it. And so since you're my priest, you tell me what we're going to do next. You tell me, what am I going to do? Am I going to bring two turtle doves? Am I going to bring a goat, a lamb, a bull? And what we're going to, we're going to sacrifice that to cover my sin. And so I, I go and I get that animal, and you kill that animal right in front of me, and you take some of that blood, you, the priest sprinkles it on the altar, he sprinkles it on me, and now that sin is covered. It's, it's not forgiven. It's just covered. The, the problem is, in terms of its permanent effect, I'm not really forgiven of that sin. And when I sin tomorrow, the lamb that I killed yesterday doesn't do me any good. I've got to come again tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that. The, the work of the priesthood has no enduring, no eternal effect. It is simply temporal. Number four, the priest himself has no permanence. Not only does his ministry not have a permanent effect, but the priest himself has no permanence. He only serves temporarily. Uh, one of the things you read in the law of Moses is that they had mandatory retirement. And so the priest would get to a certain age, and then he was done. Or if you're chosen to go into the Holy of Holies that particular year, you're just chosen for that particular year. You may never go into the Holy of Holies again. If you're the high priest, you're just the high priest for that term. And of course, death always ends the office of the priest. So a priest is only a priest as long as he is. He can never be a permanent, enduring priest. And then fifthly, there's way more characteristics of the Levitical priesthood, but we just don't have time for them. So lastly, this morning, the priesthood was strictly hereditary. By that, what I mean is, if I'm in the tribe of Levite, now not every Levite is a priest. You have to not, the, the Levites all worked in the tabernacle or the temple. They cleaned it. They took care of the the laver and the uh, the showbread, and they took care of the people and the curtains, and they moved things, and they were the worship leaders and the music guys. But only the line of Aaron were the priests. And what that means it means is, if your granddad and your dad were priests, you're going to be a priest. And you can't go to your dad and say, "I what I really want to be is a jet pilot." No, no, you're going to be a priest because you're from the lineage of priests. It also means if your dad wasn't a priest, you can't be a priest. You can't go to a priest school and get a certificate and then hang out your shingle and say, bring me your lambs and goats and bulls, I'll be your priest now. You can't do that. It's in that lineage. And there's a, something else about that. If you're in that lineage and you don't know God, you don't believe in God, you don't trust God, you still have to punch the clock, but you're still the priest. So there are many priests in the Old Testament. They weren't righteous. They weren't godly. They weren't believers, but they were priests. Unless God killed them, which he did on a couple occasions. But that's a different sermon, okay? So these are the characteristics of the Levitical priesthood. So now, as Gentiles, you know who Melchizedek is. You know something about Levitical priesthood. What does the writer tell us then in Hebrews chapter 7? Join me, verse 1. For this Melchizedek is the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. To him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. 
Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to make the case that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He's a picture of the Messiah. Here's what he says. First of all, by translation of his name, his name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. So that is a pretty good name, isn't it? Secondly, he's also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. It's not Remember, it's not Jerusalem yet. It's Salem. Salem is shalom, peace. So his name means king of righteousness. His position is the king of peace. We also discover in Genesis 14, if we took the time to read it, that there's no genealogy for them. He's He's listed there without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days, nor does it say anywhere in Scripture, oh yeah, and Melchizedek passed away. So he has no end of life, but he is resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Some of the types in the Old Testament are types where we just, we just see the parallels. But in this case, the Holy Spirit actually tells us in Hebrews... Melchizedek resembles Christ. He's a type of Christ. Verse 4. Let's talk about how great this man is. He was so great that Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of the spoils. Now, the descendants of Levi, the Levites, who who received the priestly office, have a commandment from Moses in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they are also descendants of Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, that is the Levites, he received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed him who had the promises. Now he says in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is always blessed by the superior. So what he's saying is Melchizedek blessed Abraham He's the one who is the superior one in this relationship, not Abraham. He goes on to say, And in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. He's talking about Christ. Now, this isn't a sermon on tithing, and I don't have time to to stop and give this very much, except to say, when you bring your tithes and offerings, you don't give them to the church, and they're not for me. You give them to the Lord Jesus because He is the one who lives. He's the one who lives forever. It's an act of your worship. So, in verse 9, one might even say, as he finishes this argument, that Levi himself, who received tithes from all of his brothers, paid tithes through Abraham because he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek got the tithes of Abraham. So what he's saying is, since Levi wasn't even born yet, and he's going to be of the lineage of Abraham because Abraham paid Melchizedek tithes, Levi, the one who's supposed to receive tithes, that's the highest earthly office of priesthood, actually gave them. And so here you have this beautiful contrast between the weakness of earthly priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and heavenly Melchizedek kind of priesthood. So uh, let's do this together. What are the characteristics of Melchizedek's superior priesthood? Why is it different than Aaron and all of his uh, descendants? Number one, Melchizedek's priesthood is universal, not national. Remember, the old priesthood was 
by Jews for Jews. But Jesus is a priest to every person on the planet. Because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of his shed blood, you and I, who are not Jews, who are Gentiles, are adopted into the family of God, and we become the sons and daughter of Abraham. When Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 about God's promise to Abraham that he, his descendants would be more than the stars of the sky, in that place he makes it a point that God wasn't really talking about Abraham's bloodline. He was talking about the promise that would come through the Messiah that would make every believer a descendant of Abraham. So here we sit, by and large, in this room, most of us Gentiles, and yet we are the descendants of Abraham because Jesus is a universal for every age, every language, every ethnicity, every act level of education, every person on the planet. He is our high priest. Number two, Melchizedek's priesthood is royal, not ordinary. Remember, the Levite, he could never be the king. But when we see Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he's the king of Salem. He's both the king and the high priest. Now here on the earth, when you have people who are sinners by nature, who are depraved, who are running your government, it's really smart to have the separation of powers. But when Jesus comes, there's no separation of powers. He comes as our high priest. He comes as the king of kings. He comes as the Lord of lords. He comes as the judge and the ruler who rules with an iron scepter. There's going to be no court of appeals. There's not going to be any check and balance. It will be only Jesus whom we worship and who rules us all. Jesus is both king and high priest. Number three, as we consider Melchizedek's priesthood, we discover that it's intrinsically righteous, not externally ritualistic. Uh, the, the Levitical priesthood, when you read it in the, in the Old Testament, it's just got all this stuff. Uh, how you wash the cups that are in the tabernacle and how you build the tabernacle and where you lay the gold and how the Ark of the Covenant is and how you carry it and who can carry it and how you pack it and who's the priest and who is the worship leader. It's got stuff about what you can eat and what you can't eat. There's stuff in the Old Testament that tells us which fabrics can be worn together, what you do if you're sick, how long you're considered unclean, and you can, you're only become clean when a priest declares you clean. There's just stuff on top of stuff on top of ceremonial stuff. In fact, let's be honest. How many of you, at some point in your life, you thought, I should read the Bible through, and you got to Leviticus, and it wiped you out? Can I see your hands? Yeah. And those of you who are honest, those of you who didn't raise your hands, you didn't even get that far, did you? So it's just got ritual after ritual after ritual. And remember what I told you all ago? The priest who does all the rituals doesn't even have to be a believer. There's no intrinsic righteousness in it. But Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he left heaven, he came to earth, and he was perfect. And he took all of that ritual, he took all of that law, and he wiped it out in one sacrifice where he gave himself and he shed his own blood, and he becomes the new sacrifice for the new covenant, and everything changes with Jesus. Number four, Melchizedek's priesthood is permanent and eternal, not temporary. 
what Jesus Christ does, he does once for all, meaning he saves you once for all. And secondly, Jesus Christ lives forever. In fact, we're going to read in this very chapter, he lives at the right hand of the throne of the Father to make intercession for us. It's the act of a priest. You know what a priest is? The priest is your intercessor. I can't go, I can't go directly to God because I'm sinful, because I'm unholy, because I'm depraved. I, I need someone to intercede for me, someone who's holy. We know this from the Old Testament. Isaiah goes, Isaiah chapter 6, he's caught up in a vision. He's caught to the throne of God. And he says in beautiful Shakespearean English, the King James says, Woe is me, I am undone. We, we don't even know what that means, right? We just read it. We go, well, it means this. My goose is cooked. I can't be here. This is a holy God. He's perfect and just, and I'm none of those things. I can't stand before God. And symbolically, in Isaiah chapter 6, the angel takes a coal, a hot coal from the altar, and he touches it to his mouth to cleanse his tongue and his lips so he can speak the word of God. So I can't go to God unless I have a priest. My problem is, if you're my priest, that's not good enough. You can't save me. You can't even save yourself. I can't be your priest. You need an eternal, permanent high priest after the order, not of Aaron, of Melchizedek. Number five, Melchizedek's priesthood is based in ability and power, not heredity. Who has the ability to do for you what you need? Levi? Uh Uh-uh. Aaron? No. Somebody of that lineage? No. Only Jesus can do this. And that's what the remainder of the chapter is about. Uh, maybe your Bible's like mine. Uh, right before verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 7, I have a little, uh, I have a little subtitle right there. Um, that, that subtitle isn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. The editors put that there so that when you read your Bible, you can find things faster or you know what that's about. Well, uh, my subtitle here is Jesus compared to Melchizedek. Th- that's not a good subtitle. He's really already done that. So I wrote my own subtitle in there. My subtitle says, Why do we need Jesus? What kind of high priest is Jesus? Why do you need him? And, and this is where we finally arrived. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, Paul, I, I really needed something more than an Old Testament lesson out of Leviticus. I, I needed something more from that Melchizedek guy. I, I'm going through some tough times. I... I need to hear a word from God. Here's what, here's what I want you to know. The Bible doesn't get any better than Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. This is, this is the cream de la creme. This is the, this is the best of the best. What well, we're about to read, now that we know and understand what the Levitical priesthood was, who Melchizedek was, what happened in Genesis chapter 14, now all of a sudden the thing just makes perfect sense. We begin in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, parentheses for under it the people received the law, what further need, remember my title, why do we need Jesus? What further need would there be for a different priest? You you understand this question? If you and I could have got saved by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs brought to Aaron or Levi or one of the priests, we wouldn't need Jesus. 
So it's a good question. If that's how you get saved, if someone could be declared perfect, what further need would we have of another priest? Verse 12, but when there's a change in the priesthood, it's a rhetoric question, you, that priest can't save you, so there's got to be a change. When there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Well, what change happened? Well, for the one of whom these things are spoken, he's talking about Jesus, he didn't belong to the tribe of Levi. He belonged to another tribe for which no one has ever served the altar. There's no one from Jesus' tribe has ever been priest, only from the tribe of Levi. It is evident, it says in verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah, the royal tribe, the kingly tribe. And in connection with that tribe, when you read the law, Moses never said anything about priests. So what is the first thing that we see about Jesus? What powers does Jesus have as high priest? Why, why do we need Jesus? What do we see here? We see that Jesus had the power to change the law. Jesus wasn't from Levi. He was from Judah. He shouldn't have been able to be a priest. But he's not a priest of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now think about this just a little bit. Why did the law, why did the old covenant need to be changed? Because you and I couldn't keep it. We couldn't do it. It wasn't just us. It was the Israelites as well. Do you remember these guys? They saw God. They saw God do incredible things. Nine plagues in Egypt that they saw with their own eyes. The tenth plague was the Passover. All these firstborn boys died. They experienced the work of the death angel. Their friends and neighbors came, gave them their gold and silver, and said, get out of here. They left Egypt. They got to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changed his mind. He was going to kill them all. He sent the most powerful army in the world at that time. The Red Sea opened up. They walked through on dry land, turned around, and saw the most powerful army in the world drown right there before their eyes. They didn't have any food. God gave them manna. They didn't have any meat. He gave them birds. They didn't know how to go. He led them with a pillar of fire. A pillar of fire that they had every night to protect them and remind them that God was with them. When Moses went and talked to that God and he came back, his face glowed. Do you think they would turn their back on that? They did it almost every time they could. Almost every time. Moses is gone for a few days. They make a golden calf and they worship it. People bring rebellion against Moses and the earth opens up and swallows them. You think the next guy's going to rebel? But he does anyway. They broke the covenant over and over and over and over again. So what has God got to do for us? He's got to change the rules. Now, you don't, you don't have the ability to change the rules. Do you understand that? You can say you don't like the rules. You can say, hey, I don't like this rule about stealing. I want to steal. I don't like this rule about adultery. I want to commit adultery. I don't like this rule about murder. I want to commit murder. You can, you can try to break the Ten Commandments, but in reality, they just break you. It'll destroy your life, and you'll spend eternity separated from God. The only one who can change the covenant is the one who never violated the covenant. The only one who can change the law is the lawgiver. And so Jesus Christ comes with a new covenant, a new set of rules. Now, we can't keep the new set of rules either. So what does he do? He keeps God's part of the covenant, and then Jesus becomes a man. 
and he fulfills man's part of the covenant. And as the man, as God, he goes to the cross and he brings together that which is separated and he's the new priest who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's good, isn't it? Nod your heads. That's just the first part of this. The second part is, not only is he the law changer, not only does he have that power, verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another, a different priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. He's talking about Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement or because his dad was a priest and his grandfather was a priest, but he becomes a priest by the power of his indestructible life. Now, if you've ever underlined any phrase or verse in your Bible, this is the one you want to underline. Do you understand why you need Jesus? Do you understand why he's the only one that can save you? He has demonstrated that his life is indestructible. They tried to kill him. They tried to put a seal over the tomb so he couldn't get out. He got out anyway. Do you know he didn't move the stone? He was already gone. The reason the stone was moved so you could see he was gone. They couldn't hold him. They couldn't keep him. Jesus said, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it up again. Do you know why his life is indestructible? Because he's the creator of life. He's the giver of life. He's the only one who can do that for you. Do I need to say this? Buddha can't do this for you. Muhammad can't do this for you. No guru who hugs trees can do this for you. Only Jesus can do this for you. Why do you need Jesus? He's the only one who has an indestructible life. Say amen. I just give anything to be in a black church this morning. Number three, we're running out of time. What else do we see here? Verse 18, on the one hand, the former covenant, the old commandment is set aside. It doesn't work anymore because it's weak, because it's useless. Why is it useless? Parentheses, for the law never made anyone perfect. It doesn't matter how many times I brought my lamb to cover my sin. It didn't make me perfect. It didn't heal me. It didn't change me. It didn't regenerate me. It didn't give me a new nature. The law never did that for anyone. On the other hand, a better hope. Now, chapter 6 was a whole week ago, but the last verse of chapter 6 says Jesus is the hope. He's the forerunner who goes behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. He's talking about Jesus. On the other hand, a better hope Jesus is introduced through which we draw near to God. So the third thing we see about the power of Jesus is that he has the power to make you perfect. The Old Testament didn't have that power. All the bloods of goats and bulls and lambs, all the turtle doves, all the washing the cups, the showbread, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant could not help you, couldn't get you to heaven, couldn't make you perfect. But the perfect Holy One of God, the righteous Son of God, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and he went to the cross. And his shed blood atones for your sins, and he makes us the children of God, the offspring of Abraham. He makes you, as God sees you, he makes you perfect. I know you don't get this. So here's what I want you to do. I just want to, I want to help you with this. Turn to the person next to you. If you're a believer in Christ, Turn to the person next to you and say, I am perfect. Do it right now. I, 
I can hear you giggling because it's done quite set right, right? Because you don't think that's... Here, I want to blow your mind more. Turn to that same person and say, you are perfect. If that person was your husband, that was hard, wasn't it? <laughs> Holy cow. We, we kind of smirk at that. We giggle at it because we're not used to it. I want to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, those that are in Christ are seen by the Heavenly Father through the shed blood of Jesus. He sees you perfect. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that for you. Well, this passage ends this way. Verse 22. This work makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The old one couldn't save anyone. The old one never made anyone perfect. Jesus makes you perfect. Which deal do you want? Which covenant do you want? You, you want the better deal. Verse 23. Now remember the former priest, the Levitical priesthood. There was a whole bunch of those guys. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. The last point, he has the power, Jesus. He has the power to change the law. No one else has that but the lawgiver. He has the power of an indestructible life because he created life. He has the power to make you perfect because he is perfect and his sacrifice was perfect. But he has the power to save to the uttermost. I got to thinking about the word uttermost. I really like it. It's a good chance you didn't use that word last week in your vocabulary, right? I I want you to start thinking about how to use it. Uh, This week, like for instance, you could say, our government is worse to the uttermost. How about that one? So the uttermost is an interesting word because the uttermost goes in all directions. It, it's, 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 it's all encompassing. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ because you think you've done some really terrible things and God couldn't forgive you, this word is for you. God is able to save to the uttermost. If you're here this morning and you've got one thing in particular, which is the worst thing by far that you ever did, and you think God can't forgive that, I'm here to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, God saves to the uttermost. He not only saves us out of our depravity and our wickedness, the uttermost that way, but he saves us that way. He makes you perfect before God. He also saves you that way, meaning he saves you to the uttermost, meaning he doesn't save you like through the weekend, and then when you sin again, remember in the Old Testament, if I sin, I've got to come back with my lamb again, and I've got to come back again. This lamb died, the lamb of God died once for all, and he saves me because we just did two weeks in Hebrews 6. We know he saves me for all time. I can't lose that salvation. I'm saved to the uttermost. Don't you like this word? This is what Jesus has the power to do. He can take whatever is dirty and ugly and unholy and sinful and evil in your life, and he can redeem it, and he saves you. And you just don't get to be saved by the skin of your teeth. He saves you to the uttermost. Say amen. That's what chapter 7 is about. You see? Now it makes sense. Now you realize, oh, Jesus can do for me what no one else on this planet can do. No system of belief 
no religion, no person in the history of mankind, whoever lived or will live, can do for you what Jesus can do. And he wants to do it in your life today. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, this is the start. Jesus died on the cross for you. He has the power to save you. He has the ability to save you. And no one else can. And maybe you didn't really know that before today. You've never really turned your life to Jesus. But what you know from your life is it's been meaningless. It's been empty. You have no purpose. You have no contentment. You have no real joy. What you know from your life is there has to be something more. And I'm here to tell you this morning that more is Jesus You see, the whole Word of God, from Genesis 14, where we have the story of Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ, the whole Word of God has always only ever been about Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. You don't give it to the church. You don't give it to Christianity. You give your life to Jesus. He's the one who died for you. He's the one who saves you. Trust in Him. Many of you are believers here this morning. Is it possible that your heart's grown cold? You've just been going through the motions. We talked about the, the priests going through the motions. Maybe you've been doing that. You, you read God's Word and you turn to places like Hebrews 7 and it just seems dry and it doesn't make sense. And, and you realize that you've lost the passion of the love for Jesus who changes you and makes you perfect, who gives you an indestructible life, who saves you to the uttermost. And this morning, with new passion, with a recommitment, you need to come back to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and God's spoken to you about something I don't even know about. Maybe He wants you to go on a mission trip or join a life group or follow the Lord in obedience of baptism. Maybe He wants you to reassert yourself in your marriage, be a better dad, be a better son or a daughter. But you know you've heard the voice of God this morning. In fact, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Nobody's going to come to you. I wouldn't embarrass you for the world. But how many of you would say, I know that God has spoken to me this morning. You lift your hand up and you put it right back down. God bless you. God bless you all over the room. Father, you've seen our hands, but more importantly, you know our hearts. You've spoken to us this morning through your word, once again about your your one and only son, Jesus. So today, I pray that some in this room have given their lives to you for the first time. I pray that many in this room have recommitted their lives to you. And I pray that many more have said, Jesus, whatever it is you have me to do, I will trust you. I will receive what you have for me. Father, do these things in our lives to make us and mold us into the image of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Here's the final word of benediction. This is from Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Happy Father's Day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.